0: Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. Father, we give you thanks that your word is perfect. It is inerrant. It is flawless. We thank you for the truth of it and the power of it. Lord, we believe in in Sola Scriptura. We believe that scripture alone sets the foundation and the content for our lives and for our faith. And that's because it has been breathed out by you. And Lord, we believe in tota scriptura that all of scripture is true all of scripture is inerrant and it's by looking at the the entire picture of your word that we're able to understand uh, the various parts and so help us this morning as we come to uh, what amounts to another difficult passage A hard passage to understand in some ways and a hard passage to embrace. But one that you have given us for your purposes and for your glory and that we may know. And so I ask for your help this morning. And I thank you, Jesus, in your precious name. Amen. So Matthew chapter 24, verses 15 through 22, Jesus is continuing to answer the questions asked by his disciples. Uh, The when of his return is none of their business. He'll make that clear uh, in verse 36. Um, But they asked, what are the signs of your coming and what are the signs of the end? And he tells them uh, in very basic ways. It's probably not the answer that they wanted to have, (coughs) but it, it is the answer. In verse 15, Jesus puts his finger on The issue that they need to pay attention to when he says therefore when you see the abomination of desolation which was spoken of through daniel the prophet standing in the holy place and then matthew adds a comment let the reader understand this isn't jesus comment jesus wasn't writing he was speaking matthew says let the reader understand because he's not going to take the time to explain it matthew wrote his gospel for hebrews for jews They probably would have had some understanding of this already. He didn't need to go into it. Um, We're going to need to go into it, and so we are going to spend a little bit of time in Daniel 9. Um, Let's begin by reading 15 through 22, though. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things out that are in his house. And whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. In order to to properly get a a footing and understand this, we need to begin by going to Daniel 9. If you'd like to turn back there. Um, Now, I generally preach 35 to 40 minutes, and my sermon manuscripts line out at about 3,000 words. Yesterday morning, I had 5,500 words or so, most of them in Daniel nine, and I had to strip out quite a bit. So perhaps Wednesday night, uh, or rather uh, next Sunday night, when we uh, when we have our doctrine discussion, all uh, we'll look more carefully at that. We'll see. But for now, let me just give you uh, an outline of Daniel 9. The first two verses provide the setting. Daniel has been in Babylon for quite a long time. It's the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus from the seed of the Medes. And Daniel had been reading in the book of Jeremiah and either learned or was reminded that the captivity would be 70 years. And he knew that it had been 70 years. And so everything now is, is ready to move on to the next thing. So in verses 3 to 16, Daniel prays a prayer of confession on behalf of, of Israel. Uh, it's an excellent prayer of confession. Go back to Daniel 9 at some point and read it carefully. It's it's an ideal confession. Then in 17 to 19, Daniel appeals to, To Yahweh for mercy. He says, So now, our God, listen to the prayer of your slave and to his supplications, and for your sake, O Lord, let your face shine on your desolate sanctuary. O my God, incline your ear and listen, open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any righteousness of our own, but on account of your abundant compassion. O Lord, listen. Oh, Lord, forgive. Oh, Lord, give heed and take action. For your sake, oh, my God, do not delay because of your city, because your city and your people are called by your name. There's a key in that last phrase. For your sake, oh, my God, do not delay. Daniel's looking for uh, a quick response from the Lord. It's been 70 years Since the southern kingdom was taken captive, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was laid waste, and while we're not told this in scripture, I'm speculating this, I think it's possible that Daniel's thinking is that if God doesn't do something quickly to restore Israel, Israel will simply vanish. They'll simply be absorbed into the nations and cease to exist. There's almost no Jewish presence at all in in Judah. Samaria had been harder to clean out, and Assyrian colonists had gone there. They had intermarried with the Jews and produced the Samaritans, which had a a different way of worship and a different religious foundation. They were not Jews. Jesus speaks about that. We see that in the New Testament. So I think for Daniel, there's a sense of urgency that something needs to be done now, or Israel is done for. Well, in verse 20, he, he says that while he was speaking and confessing, verse 21, the man Gabriel, who he had who seen in the vision previously, an angel touched me in my extreme weariness about the time of the evening offering as Daniel has been praying apparently all day. Then he made me understand and spoke with me and said, O oh, Daniel, I have now come forth to give you insight with understanding. At the beginning of your supplication, the word was issued. So I have come to tell you that you are highly, for you are highly esteemed. So understand the message and gain understanding in what has appeared. God sent Gabriel to tell Daniel, this is going to take place. I hear your prayer. I understand the the sense of urgency that you have. You are highly esteemed in the sight of God. That's remarkable. That's a wonderful thing. And so God wants Daniel to understand what's going to take place. And then in 24 to 27, Gabriel delivers what amounts to a countdown to redemption. Um, Seventy weeks, he says, have been determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the holy of holies. So you are to know and have insight that from the going out of a word to restore and rebuild Israel or Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. It will be restored and rebuilt with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end there will be war. Desolations are decreed, and he, that is the prince who is to come, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. But in the middle of the week he will make sacrifice and grain offering cease and on the, end of abom- or on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, and even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. So a couple of points here. One is that uh, Gabriel uses the word weeks to stand for years. The, the Hebrew word weeks is almost literally the word sevens. And so an accurate translation could be 77s. Seven sevens, sixty-two sevens, and one seven. Um, most of the time it's a seven-day week, calendar days, but on occasion it means years, and we have to understand it in the context. This certainly means years. It doesn't mean weeks. So Daniel says, or, or Gabriel says to Daniel, a period of 490 years has been established by God to accomplish six purposes. Uh, those, Those six purposes are to finish the transgression of Israel, that is, put an end to their rebellion once and for all time. Second, to make an end of sin so that sin is no more. Third, to make atonement for iniquity, their sin will be gone for all time. Four, to bring in everlasting righteousness so they will never sin again. Five, he will seal up, that means complete, vision and prophecy. The word of God will be completely fulfilled. And then six, he will anoint the Holy of Holies. Uh, in Ezekiel, we see the glory of Yahweh leave at the, the beginning of the captivity period. It, it departs the temple, it stands over the threshold, then it moves to the eastern side of the Temple Mount, and then it leaves. The glory of God has not been at the temple. It was not at the, the temple that was rebuilt Uh, It was not at Herod's temple, but one day it will return. Now, we can't put this on a calendar. God didn't give us a a calendar setting. What he does, I think, is is give us a countdown. And as I kind of pondered how to explain this, the clearest explanation that I could find would be a a space shuttle or a rocket countdown. So back in the day when we were launching, launching the space shuttle, uh... the flight director several days before the launch would announce forty three hours t-minus forty three hours and counting and the clock would begin counting down Uh, six hours later there would be an automatic hold it was built into the system and the flight director would announce t-minus twenty seven hours and holding that first hold typically lasted for four hours When those four hours had passed, how much time remained on the countdown clock? Well, 27 hours. So then after the four hours were done, he announced T-minus 27 hours and counting it. It began counting down again. And uh, as much as I want to go through the whole process with you, I won't. Suffice it to say that the space shuttle launch had a 43-hour countdown. That took a minimum of 65 hours to accomplish. I think that what Gabriel is doing is giving Daniel Yahweh's countdown for Israel. And so when Artaxerxes gave the order to rebuild the temple and to restore the city, God announces T-490 years and counting. That first seven-week period of time, the 49 years, that is, uh, I think is probably the length of time it took for Ezra and then Nehemiah to finish building and dedicating the temple and then to to finish the walls of the temple and to go through that entire process so that the city was secure again. Then another 434 years go by, 483 years total, 69 weeks as the timing goes, and then Messiah the Prince, Jesus Christ, enters Jerusalem and he's crucified and God announces from heaven, T minus seven years and holding. And it's been on hold ever since. For the last two years, the countdown clock for Israel has been at seven years and holding. And what we're waiting for is the prince who is to come. The New Testament calls him the Antichrist. When the prince who is to come arrives and makes a firm covenant with many, that means uh, many around the world, then the Lord is going to announce from heaven T minus seven years and counting. And those seven years, that that final seven-year span will continue. The countdown will continue, and it won't be paused again. Halfway through at the three-and-a-half-year mark, T minus three-and-a-half years and counting, the prince who is to come, the Antichrist, will make sacrifice and grain offerings cease. Uh, it, It seems from here and from other scriptures that part of the covenant he made with Israel is that they would be able to resume sacrifice on the temple mount and now he's going to cause that to stop and genuine trouble begins for Israel he stands in place for the next three and a half years and then comes one and it could be the antichrist and it could be someone else but Gabriel says on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate and that's where that phrase the abomination of desolations comes from. The sense of this I believe is that since the word wing could mean shirt or skirt or covering I think the sense is that one will come clothed in abomination and he will make that place of sacrifice desolate that whatever whatever temple uh, such as exists on the temple mount will become desolate because of the actions of this man we know that Antiochus Epiphanes during the Greek invasion sacrificed a pig and and repurposed the altar of God and he defiled it that was kind of the original uh, abomination of that which had been made desolate but this is going to be something else He will continue in that position, Gabriel says, until there is a complete destruction poured out on him. That complete destruction is decreed by God, which means that as awful as this time is, as as unthinkable as it is, it is being carefully managed by Yahweh, and it will not go one second past that countdown clock. He will never lose control of it. The entire seven-year period is the tribulation period. The final three and a half years is the great tribulation period. And there's two different things happening. From the point of view of Revelation 6 through 18, the wrath of God is being poured out on the earth through the seals and the bowls and the trumpets. And the Lord is systematically judging the nations of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth, and all the systems. At the same time, There is an attempt by the devil to destroy Israel. And that's what Jesus is making reference to, I believe, in Matthew 24. We can go back there if you have turned to Daniel. When Jesus says in verse 22, unless those days had been cut short, he's not speaking about, uh, unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. He's not talking about the, the pouring out of the wrath of God. The wrath of God is surgically accurate it it never loses control it will be worse than anything that the earth has ever seen in terms of god's punishment but it will be surgically precise i believe he's talking about the wrath of the antichrist and the world against israel which will be aimed at israel's utter destruction so we'll we'll get there in a minute so verse 15 Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, and we have some understanding now at least, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. That's the action point. That's the application of this verse. Run for your lives. Whoever is on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are in his house, and whoever is in the field must not turn back to get his garment. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. So what's the rush? Why are the woes pronounced? Why is such a prayer being offered? Because once these events begin taking place, the countdown will not stop again. God isn't going to pause the countdown to let somebody run back to their house and get something that they forgot. He's not going to look at women who are pregnant, have a hard time traveling, or women who are nursing and pause the countdown so that they can escape to safety. He's not going to wait until winter is over and travel is easier. He's not going to wait until the Sabbath is over. Once that seven-year period begins and once that three-and-a-half-year Great Tribulation begins, the countdown won't stop. Now, we live in, in the time of the hold. We're still at T-minus seven years and holding. So there are wars and there's rumors of wars and there's earthquakes and there's famines and there's disasters in various places. They all ebb and flow. Some years are better, some years are worse. The, the song from Annie says, the sun will come out tomorrow. Bet your bottom dollar tomorrow there'll be sun." it's it's about it's going to be rough today it's going to be better tomorrow it's going to be rough again and better again and we're used to this pattern but once this begins once this final countdown resumes it will never be better during those seven years it will simply get worse and worse and worse when this man who is clothed with abomination makes the temple desolate, a persecution of Israel is going to begin that makes the Holocaust look like a a verbal insult. Time is not going to pause. What we're going to see is the greatest tribulation the world has ever known, for then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And unless those days have been cut short, this is how bad the tribulation will be. No life would have been saved. The hatred of the devil poured out through the Antichrist and the false prophet and the beast and, and all of his characters would bring mankind to a complete end and especially Israel if God did not bring it to an end. And I think the reason for that is that the devil is going to attempt to destroy Israel before God can complete their redemption. He's going to wait until the very end. Now in scripture we often see that the suffering of the people of Israel intensifies before deliverance. We see that take place in in Egypt, in their slavery in Egypt. Moses is sent by God. He announces himself to the people. Then he goes to Pharaoh and he, he begins to say, let my people go and the plagues begin and Pharaoh doesn't say to his advisors, you know, we ought to back off a little bit. We ought to make things a little bit easier. Pharaoh says, uh, we're going to double the output that we require from them, but we're not going to give them the materials that they need. They were making bricks out of mud and straw. The straw is there to bind the mud together. They had been pro- the, Isra- uh, the Egyptians, rather, had been providing the straw. Now they're going to double the output but not provide the straw. And the people of Israel become outraged with Moses. He's there to deliver them. He's there to, to help them get out. He's there to help spare them. But everything's getting worse. And that's a, a foreshadowing, perhaps, of what's going to happen for against Israel within the tribulation period. Uh, don't think that that God would like to stop that persecution but will be powerless against it. Nothing is impossible for him. All things are firmly in his control. He never struggles to accomplish anything. And even during the worst of the great tribulation, the devil will be nothing more than a surgical instrument in God's hands. The Lord's purposes, I believe, is to leave Israel standing alone, unaided, no allies, friendless in the world, so that when he redeems them, he alone receives the glory and the praise for redeeming them. So uh, not a single nation will stand with them, not even the United States will, if the United States exists at the time. That's that's a question yet to be answered. Israel will be standing by herself against the wall, on the gallows, noose around her neck, on the funeral pyre with a torch ready to, to drop. Antichrist is going to be controlling the firing squad and the tr- the hangman's noose and the torch. And at the very moment the trigger begins to be squeezed, at the very moment the trap door begins to open and the pyre begins to burn, burn, Jesus will return. And the time that has been the worst time human history has ever known will give way overnight to the best time human history has ever known. So in Revelation chapter 19... We see the return of Christ. Verse 11, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sits on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, having a name written on him which no one knows except himself, and being clothed with a garment dipped in blood. His name is also called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the wrath of the rage of God the Almighty. And he has on his garment and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Hebrew titles. So God's purposes at that point, announced by Gabriel to Daniel, will be achieved. Israel's transgression will be brought to an end. Her sin will be ended. Her iniquity will be atoned for. Everlasting righteousness will enter in. Scripture will be fulfilled. And the Lord will anoint the Holy of Holies with his own presence as he takes the throne and fills the kingdom of God with his light. God promises in Deuteronomy 30, That everything that he has promised will come to pass. So in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and chapter 29, God warns of blessings or promises blessings for obedience and warns of cursings for disobedience. And then he says in Deuteronomy 31, so it will be when all these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I set before you, then I will. So Israel has exhausted the blessings For obedience. There are no more blessings within the law for Israel. They are living with the fullness of the curses of the law right now. But then he goes on to say in Deuteronomy 30: After all these things happened, I will gather you again from captivity, I will return compassion to you. He speaks of them being captive in all the nations and all the peoples and to the ends of the sky. So he's not speaking of the the captivity in Babylon. He's talking about a a dispersion dispersion and captivity around the world. He will gather them again, bring them back to the land of their fathers. They'll possess the land and prosper and multiply in the land as never before. But then he goes on to say, and I will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your children so that you love me with all your heart and with all your soul. That's the new covenant. So when the old covenant has run its course, the new covenant is promised. God promised that through Moses. It has not yet been fulfilled. And he does that so that they will live. And this is not casual living. This is not just everyday mundane living. This is living with a capital L. This is life eternal. It's the new covenant. The greatest tribulation ever will give way to the greatest redemption ever. There's never been a revival like the revival of that time. When Jesus returns, as I read this morning in in Zechariah 12, every eye will see him. They will mourn him whom they pierced. God will pour out on The house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of a nation. And then the remainder of Zechariah 12 describes this private mourning, this personal mourning. It's not some corporate thing. But then Zechariah 13.1 says, In that day a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for impurity. And God describes his judgment against his enemies and the redemption of his people. So as, as we bring this home, Matthew chapter 24 is clearly a dark chapter. There are painful moments of time coming for the people of Israel. The abomination of desolation will begin the worst three and a half years the world has ever known. Now, as far as I understand scripture, the church is gone at this point. We're gone. We're taken out at the beginning of the tribulation because God's purpose for the tribulation those seven years is to restore his nation and to restore his people and to give them his undivided attention. Revelation chapter 14 says that 144,000 Hebrews, Jews, will come to faith in him from all the tribes of Israel. And I've heard it said that it's going to be a tremendous revival. You've got 144,000 evangelists. Well, right now there's 8.1 billion people on the earth, give or take. Revelation says that a third will die. That leaves 5 point something billion people. What's 144,000 to 5 billion? It's... One evangelist, I think I figured one evangelist for every 38,000 people. This is not a place that's actually packed with the preaching of the word. But when Jesus returns and they see him, every living Jew on the earth at that time will be converted. That's his purpose for Israel. Now, why does this matter to us? As far as I know, none of us are Jews. We're part of the church, the bride of Christ. My understanding is that we'll be gone. I could be wrong about that. I'm willing to admit that but my understanding is that we will be gone so why since we won't be here for this terrible time why should we be concerned with it and it's because God keeps his promises he made promises to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob he made promises to Israel in Deuteronomy 30 he made promises to Daniel and he's going to, to fulfill all of those promises and he'll do that faithfully And the same God who promises them promises us all that the Father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. So our security and our safety in Christ, our position in Christ is as certain as the position of Israel in Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by his working, that is, by the exercise of his power, through which he is able even to subject all things to himself. So he has the power to subject all things to himself. He has the authority to do that. And when he exercises it for us, it will not be forcing us against our will into subjection, but bringing utter and perfect eternal transformation into our lives. God's promises to Israel matter because he's made promises to us. And God keeps his promises. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the blessing of it and the gift of it. I ask, Lord, that as we think about these dark times to come, whether or not your church will, will witness those things, whether or not we will witness those things, we have the assurance that those events are not out of control that they're taking place according to your divine purposes, according to your decree, it will be unimaginably difficult for those alive during that time. There's no question about that. But nothing will hinder you from accomplishing your purposes. And in the end, when you have redeemed Israel as when you redeemed us, only you deserve any glory only do, only you deserve any praise and so Lord we give you thanks today for the faithfulness with which you keep your promises and we thank you in Jesus name amen